Last week, in the first part of Revelation chapter 17, one of the angels who had these seven bowls of wrath introduced a vision. And the vision was one in which John was told that he would see the judgment of this great prostitute. She was identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And she sits on this scarlet beast. And that that meant that she's allied with the empire in its political and military power, connected together with her economic and cultural seductions. And so John sees this. He sees her in all her splendor. And she was nevertheless called the mother of the earth's abominations. And she was depicted as being drunk on the blood of the saints. And this leaves John astonished and perplexed. It's a perplexing vision. It's not immediately self-explanatory, but it's also overwhelming. He's confused. After all, he was told by the angel, I'm going to show you the judgment of this woman. And all he saw was this sort of alluring splendor and her her collusion, her bloody collusion with the beast against the church. And so in today's text, which is again Revelation 17, beginning at verse 7, the angel seeks to eliminate John's perplexity. That being said, I must tell you, I think that this text is the most difficult text in the book. It's a book full of difficult texts. This is a really difficult one. So the angel may have eliminated John's perplexity. Not not clear that the angel has eliminated the historic church's perplexity in reflecting on this text. So we need a good deal of caution and care and humility with this passage. But I think we can clearly see the big point, and hopefully that'll be... Uh, That'll be made clear as we go on. So anyway, Revelation 17, verse 7, the angel tells John that he's going to tell him the mystery of the woman and of the beast on which she rides. It turns out, as is often the case, John does this in reverse order. He reveals the mystery of the beast first, and later he'll come to the mystery of the woman. And so today, in verses 8 through 14, we'll look only at the mystery of the beast And we'll do it under the four headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. There's an outline there, the beast itself, the seven heads, the ten horns, and the warfare. So first, the beast. So in verse 8, the angel tells John, The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. We already saw, back in chapter 13, that the beast had received a mortal wound and yet lived. And you might remember that, that John is drawing on what was known as the Nero Redivivus myth, the Nero coming back to life myth, which was popular after the emperor Nero's death. It was widely believed that Nero had not died, that he had just been taken away to the east, and that he'd come back with armies, and he would conquer the empire. And there was a great deal of fear after Nero's death. And so the beast received a mortal wound. After Nero's death, the empire looked like it was tottering and going to collapse. But finally it stabilizes. And there in chapter 13 we said that this means the beast parodies 
the beast mimics the resurrection of Christ. So that these beastly regimes, they often go through cycles or, or crises where they appear to avert disaster and then they restore order. And this generally allows them to consolidate power. Right? There are no crises in which uh, the, the political leaders get together and say, the appropriate response to this crisis is for us to devolve power to you, for us to shrink our footprint, for us to have less power, for us to do less things. Crises always expand the power of the state right, and allow them to thus seduce more of the earth's inhabitants. So the beast in chapter 13 mimics the resurrection of Christ That is probably in the background here, but it's not primarily what's going on here in chapter 17. Notice the threefold language. Was, is not, and is about to rise. This is a parody of the threefold description of God in the book of Revelation. God is the one who was, and who is, and who is to come. So the beasts in history, the totalitarian regimes in history, are always making divine claims. But here we could be more precise. We, we can put it this way. The beast in chapter 13 mimics the resurrection of Christ. And this beast here in chapter 17 mimics the second coming of Christ. The beast is now the one who was and who is and is about to come. So John is self-consciously echoing this language about the Lord God Almighty and applying it to the beast. So this means that beasts not only make divine claims, they make transformative claims. Right? They have utopian visions of justice and peace and the arc of history and the right side of history and revolutionary claims about the outcome of history, often conceived of as predetermined. They are going to come and they are going to remake and they are going to reorder the world. God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. And the total state is always saying, we are and we shall come and remake the world. And so the language of total states is seductive to people. It actually works because it borrows the language of Christian eschatology. It's messianic language. This is why Marxism is so seductive to Western intellectuals. It's the language of peace and harmony and justice and the obliteration of evil and the elimination of inequalities in a classless society, all without atoning reconciliation. So you cannot, it turns out, just throw Christian eschatology away. What ends up happening is people just replace it with another eschatology, another vision of the end. But notice, this description by John is actually a biting parody of the beast's claims. It's a parody of his parody, if you will. He was, but instead of he is, we get he is not. This is John's way of saying he's, in fact, emptied of power because he's been dealt a decisive blow by the death and resurrection, the real death and the real resurrection of the real Christ. He's about to rise, but he rises not from the dead. He rises from the bottomless pit or the abyss, John says, from the underworld. And he doesn't come to judge the living and the dead, to remake the world. He rises only to lead to and to go to destruction. 
So the, these, these, enti- these eschatological claims of the total state end, John is saying, not in a new heavens and a new earth. They always end in devastation and destruction. Gulags, show trials, starvation, the crushing of dissent. And it's only a collection of useful idiots that look at these states and defend them. This is what happens with the total state. It promises peace and it brings complete devastation. We have dozens of examples of this in our own in the last hundred years or so. If you want to see it in Cuba, the glorious revolution, then read Armando Valadares' book, Against All Hope. He's a political prisoner under Castro for decades. So the eschatological claims of the total state, it takes some time, but they end up scorching the earth. And so before the end, as the rest of verse 8 shows, those who dwell on earth will marvel to see the beast who was and is not who is to, and who is to come. Let's be clear. These beasts win the worshiping adoration of multitudes. Right? You can still find apologists for the Castro regime in Cuba today. In fact, you can find a bunch of them within a 30-mile radius. Because these states do, in fact, and can, in fact, deliver the goods for a period of time. That's why their parades are packed. Notice, as well, that the beast here is, in some sense, still to come about to rise from the bottomless pit. So the full ferocity of the beast is future to the time John writes. And so the beast here refers, again, it has a sort of twofold reference. It refers to the the coming persecution of the church under the Roman Empire, but the way John describes it, it means the beast can manifest itself again. The beast is sort of a template for John. It refers to Rome, but not exclusively to Rome. It it is associated with the end of history as well. Okay, that's the easy part. Our second point is the seven heads. This calls, John says here in verse 9, for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. This is not hard. Cicero, Virgil, others is common. They all speak of Rome as the city on seven hills. So the seven hills identify the heads of the beast with the Roman Empire's capital city, the city of Rome. Now, verses 10 through 12, these are, I think, the three most difficult verses in the book. I will try not to, uh, to make it harder than it is. Um, and they're also disputed. In verse 10, it says, the seven heads are also seven kings. So let me just make a general point here about this apocalyptic symbolism, or just just a general point about reading a book like this and, and dealing with this language. It's very hard if you have a sort of um, engineer's mind, like I was trained with, or you're sort of a a geometry sort of person, right, um, to deal with it because the symbolism is fluid and elastic. And the symbols sort of splash into each other and they overlap. So heads are hills 
And then John tells you immediately, they're also kings. So what are the heads? Well, they're hills and they're kings. Right? Last week, the woman was seated on many waters. Here, she's seated on seven heads. So there is a kind of complexity here that you have to be aware of. You can't just cross things and say, well, this is that and this is that. So of the seven kings, we're told, five are fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. This is the most tantalizing piece of information in the book of Revelation. It's been used throughout history by commentators to try and pin down exactly when John writes. Seeks to, people seek to identify precisely who the sixth king is and who the one who now is might be. So generally, folks who think that John wrote early, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, they view the sixth king as Nero. And so what they do is they count the kings as a series of first century Roman Empire emperors. Now there's a number of problems with this. I'm going to give you two quick ones, though. First, there's about a half a dozen ways to enumerate the Roman emperors. Do you start with Caesar Augustus or do you start with Julius Caesar? Do you include the three emperors who reigned in the same year after Nero's death? If you do, you don't get Nero for the sixth one. If you start with Caesar Augustus, you can't get Nero for the sixth one. You have to start with Julius Caesar and eliminate the three. There's no agreement on the possible ways to count, and there's five or six other ways to count. And secondly, and this is most telling, I think, is that there's only seven, or perhaps eight, as we'll see, emperors in view before the end. And there are more than eight emperors before the Roman Empire falls. This is often missed. No matter how you count the kings, there's not enough of them to get either to the end of history or to the end of the Roman Empire. So, hopefully you can anticipate where I'm going to go here. This numbering is almost certainly figurative. Like the seven mountains, the seven kings represent the fullness of the beast's political agents. Right? This allows the beast to be both Rome and some later Rome. And so the first century church stands, John says, under a current king, the sixth one, meaning the church stands near the end because the church lives in the last days, because the end has come in Christ. But we're not yet at the end because there's a seventh and final manifestation of the beast, which is to come. Now, and he comes for a little while. Now, this figurative approach is made, I think, much more certain by verse 11. Verse 11 is also difficult. It says, The beast that was and is not is an eighth king, but belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. So this, this is called a graded numerical statement. There's a number of them in the Old Testament. I'm sure you know them, right? Things like there are six things, even seven, which the Lord hates. The point in those kinds of statements is both that the numbers are not literal, right? When you have a statement in the Old Testament that says, you know, there are three things, even four. There are six things, even seven. It doesn't mean there's only seven. It's just a, it's just a literary device. Same, and here what you have is there are seven kings, even eight. Right? And, and the, so it's telling you the numbers you should not try and count literally. 
And also says the last number serves as a kind of intensification of the previous number. And so the point here is that after the seven kings, the beast will rise a final time. When he does, he'll have the same traits as the previous seven. He's one of the seven. He's an eighth. That's all John is trying to say, I think. And so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of interplay here between seven and eight. And again, this is a reminder of the fact that the beast mimics the resurrection of Christ. Christ was raised on the eighth day. Right? Crucified on Friday, Sabbath, the Sabbath day, Sun, Saturday is the seventh day, Sunday is the eighth day, the first day of a new week. And you, you'll find this language about the resurrection occurring on the eighth day all over the place in the early church. The resurrection, first day of the new, new week, eighth day. The beast is an eighth, rises as an eighth. He's an imitator of Christ. He's a parody of the new creation. All right, the third point then is the ten horns. Remember, there's seven heads, ten horns. Hang in there. After this verse, the three hardest verses are over. It gets easier in a couple minutes. Verse, verse 12, the ten horns you saw are ten kings you have, who have not yet received a kingdom. Again, I'll spare you the options here, but the main one is, Ten Roman provincial governors. But this is almost certainly a symbolic number like seven, which speaks of fullness. And and we know this because not only is ten a symbolic number, but the kings that are said to be in league with the beast. There are three times that John does this in Revelation. He does it here. He does it in chapter 16. He does it in chapter 19. He depicts this final battle where there's this beastly power and all and these kings are in league with the beast against the saints, against the Lamb. He depicts it three times. And in all three times, the kings that are in league with the beast are all the kings of the earth. Not seven, not eight, not ten, all. So these are symbolic numbers of saying there's an emerging evil Power, if you will. So what's in view in verse 12 is an end of history alliance with the beast and a full array of kings. They, they receive authority for a short time. John will say in the next chapter, in one hour the per, is the period that Babylon falls for good. And so there's an alliance. Look at verse 13. It makes it explicit. The ten kings are of one purpose. They hand over their authority and their power to the beast. Okay. I'm going to step back. I want to summarize this. There's really only one big idea to grasp in this sea of detail. Perhaps confusing detail. The beast which is about to rise from the pit. The seventh king who will come for a little while. The beast which is itself an eighth king. And the ten kings. All of those are ways of symbolically saying that the beast and his agents will make a climactic appearance in history at the end. That's it. It's the attempt to sort of squeeze more historical detail out of the text that just produces a whole array of readings. The text makes clear, though, they will go to destruction. The text is saying something like this. Toward the end of history, evil becomes more self-conscious. Right? And as evil becomes more self-conscious, you can see this even in cultures in history. 
it ebbs and flows. It's not climactic. But you can see that as it becomes more self-conscious, it will seek the eradication of Christ and his church. You see that in history? You're going to see it at the end of history. And this brings us, mercifully, perhaps, to our last point, the warfare. Verse 14. The beast and the kings will make war on the lamb, on the lamb whose resurrection they've parodied, But here, and this is how we know we're at the end now, the text says the Lamb will conquer them. Previously in the book, at various points under the beast, the text has said the beast will wage war on the saints and he will conquer them. You might remember that. The text explicitly said that. Here, the Lamb conquers those who wage war. So the scene has shifted. So it's very important to understand this about Jesus. He's the lamb who conquered by being conquered, right? That's how he conquered. He gave his life up. But here, he conquers his conquerors. He will make visible his triumph. Right? Jesus will, if you will, you know, in his kindness, in his goodness, in perfect accord with who he is, he will enforce his justice in the earth. It would be a huge mistake. It's often made by people to think, well, since Jesus was lamb-like and turned the other cheek and gave up his life, he'll never come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Because that would be coercive. That would be against the nature of who he is. That's something you have to be careful to repudiate. Jesus gave his life so that he can renew and restore the world. And that will require an appearance. That will require him to administer justice. And so he will make visible his triumph. And he does this to demonstrate openly that he and not Caesar, this is the key here, is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You see that in the text? This is a term which is applied to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It it was in our Old Testament reading. It's in our call to worship from Deuteronomy 10. Jesus is given the titles of the God of Israel. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, many of you have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. We should not miss the overtly political character of these titles. Especially in this context, which is rife with kings and kingdoms. There are people who think that Christianity is is a... a kind of a non-political religion that is not politically relevant. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a sense in which the church can thrive under any political regime and has. But it is a, an explosive and subversive and political reality. The confession that Jesus is Lord. Here, Lord of lords. King of kings. And so, the Christian faith is not something that just exists in the ether. It's a concrete community with its own laws, and with its own orders, with its own ends, with its own allegiances, right? with its own boundaries which transcend national boundaries. And so it's very important to see um, the, the reality of this vision of, of Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think of it as, try and say this, Jesus Christ is President of Presidents. Prime Minister of Prime Minister. Supreme Court Justice of Supreme Court Justices. 
right? That sort of thing. Legislator of legislators. And immediately you, you, t- you turn from viewing Christianity as a, as a sort of private, um, you know, devotional, um, spiritual thing that really doesn't impinge on the hard, real politic uh, uh, business of nations and commerce into something completely different, right? That has the crucified God at the center of it under the Roman Empire declaring that he and not the state, not Caesar, is king of kings and lord of lords. It's a different sort of religion than, than the kind of Christianity that is bouncing around in the heads of Christians. That other kind of Christianity is a thing with feathers. Right? It's a soft and fluttery kind of thing. This is a different thing. The Jesus who was humiliated in weakness will come in glory. The one who was slain and conquered will conquer his foes. Now, I've mentioned this before here, but I'll mention it again because I like it. And I'll probably mention it yet again before the end of the series. But the best thing to see here is um, the Croatian theologian who's now at Yale, Miroslav Volf, who says that in the West, people seem to have trouble with the idea that God will come and exact vengeance and administer justice. And Wolf says, this is not a problem. Now, he's at Yale now. He said, but this is not a problem if you grew up where I grew up and you saw you know, your mothers and your daughters raped and your cities pillaged and burned and you grew up in this incredible strife and injustice and warfare. Only comfortable people in the West, Wolf says, could sit back and say, well, I don't like, I don't like vengeance and I don't like justice. If, you were, if, if your family was shot by Stalin at, at, a, at a show trial, you're going to want someone to come and rectify the situation. Somebody has to administer justice because of the camps in Germany in World War II. And no future state can do that. So this is a, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful vision. It's a holy vision. It's a pristine vision. And, and vast swaths of the human race are crying for just this, for the one who was conquered to come and conquer. And, and the beauty of this, the goodness of it, is that the, in, the hands, in the hands of the one who is administering justice, right, those are the hands that were pierced. Right? The wrath is the wrath of the land. I, I, you or I or no human state can do this. Jesus can do it. Because the one who is lamb is king of kings and lord of lords. This is the internal dynamic mechanism of the church's hoping for glory. They are hoping that the conquest that he wrought on the, on the cross will be openly manifested. And that justice will be administered in the earth. So, those... With the Lamb, the text says, participating in his conquest are called and chosen and faithful. The root of the church, the church's existence, is in God's gracious election. Right? The, church, the church exists because God calls people to himself. It's in, in the great phrase of the Reformers, the church is the creature of the word. This is why states cannot destroy it. The, the church finally has its root in God's gracious elected. It doesn't have its root in our virtue, that's for sure. It doesn't have its root in our administrative prowess or our, our splendid array of skills. 
It's rooted in the electing God who summons a people unworthy to himself. And then they're with the Lamb and they're faithful. So John has now seen the mystery of the beast. And it's as difficult a text as this is, it's not hard to get the outline. I think, I think hopefully that's clear. The beast and his agents, mimicking Christ's power and his coming, shall emerge in an escalated form with ferocity at the end of history. History ends with a bang, not a whimper. But they shall be conquered by the Lamb. Because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that conquest will be shared by the chosen, the faithful, the ones who are with the Lamb. So let me just say a word about the interim. Notice that in the vision here, the beast is seductive and godlike. And, and, and the, the angel says to John, it's going to take wisdom, a mind with wisdom, for you to grasp the inner nature of the beast. Right? You, can't, you can't just glide along the surface of life and grasp the inner nature of the beast. You have to discern the different destinies, the angel saying to John, the different comings of the beast and the lamb. People are seduced, as I said earlier. And, and the images are meant to, to communicate that. Right? This is not like, oh, this is so awesome, um, awful that no one would be seduced by it. Quite the contrary. The claim in the book of Revelation is that these bestial states seduce the whole world. That everybody runs after them. Right? I mean, they're giving you free stuff. Right? They're protecting you. They're providing for you. They have your best interest at heart. So people are seduced. And that means you have to have wisdom and patience and humility. As I said last week, resistance, endurance, discernment. This is not something that can be done in one or two sermons. The church has to cultivate a kind of political um, perception. And so we should pray that God gives us that kind of wisdom. We should pray that we be with the Lamb. You know how you're safe? You're those that are with the Lamb. That's what the text says. The ones that are with the Lamb share in His final victory. And so may the Lord who called you and chose you keep you faithful to the end. Amen.